0: Hi, I'm Thanassi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. Today, I'm joined by Becca Wasser from the Center for New American Security, or CNAS, as I learned today, uh, not CNAS. Uh, And she's been working for years on questions of the U.S. defense footprint or force posture in the world. Today, uh, she's talking to me as part of a series we're doing here about what progressive foreign policy should look like down in the weeds, nuts and bolts, nitty gritty, uh, sort of moving away from Pablo and talking points and thinking about what do actual policies and changed, improved policies look like on a variety of our core issues. The issue today is how big should our military footprint be in the Gulf? Uh, Becca, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: So I'm hoping to lead us in the next half hour through like four big questions. uh, when, When we talk about U.S. military footprint in the Gulf. One is, why are we there? Two is, how much are we there? Like, how big is our footprint? Three, uh, and this is the thing I want to spend the most time on, what should it look like? Uh, how, you know, how much of it should we keep? What should be there? And lastly, how do we get there? So that's where we talk about the the, the, the politics of, of changing any of these uh, uh, arrangements uh, with our allies domestically, so on. Um, so start off, because I actually was surprised by how few, uh, how many of the people I talked to don't actually know what is our military presence uh, in the Gulf or in, in CENTCOM in general? So, can you give us like the you know bird's eye view? A couple of minutes, like what? Uh, oh, I'm, I went out of my own order, but you know what? that's fine. Um, we'll go. With <laughs> what's there and then why? So, so bird's eye view. What is our footprint in the Gulf?
1: Sure. So the United States has military bases that it operates from throughout the Middle East, but these are predominantly located in the Gulf region. And so these are bases that run from major operating bases, which are a much larger footprint. And this would be places that have traditionally been hubs for various types of operations. For example, um, Al Udeid, which is located in Qatar, is a major operating base where the US Air Force has traditionally had its regional hub. But you also have a number of smaller operating uh, bases, smaller constellations of logistics outposts. Um, the United States has looked to close some of these in recent years, but all of that to say is that you have all of these bases dotted throughout the Gulf in almost every single, uh, you know, GCC state. Not all, but almost every single one. Or the United States has rights to operate from sovereign bases, so bases that are owned by the host country in a variety of different nations. And so with that, it's not just about concrete, you know, having all of these bases and this infrastructure footprint, but it's also about having forces. So with every single news article that you read about you know, the United States sending more Patriot missiles to, for example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, We heard that a lot in sort of the, you know, 2019-2020 space. All of those military equipment, all of that military equipment, those come with forces. So, usually for an air defense, um, you know, capability, there's an associated unit, in this case, a Patriot battalion. So, you have You know, various forces like that, as well as some of the people that you need to make a base operate, whether that is, you know, from the folks who, uh, you know, keep runways current to, you know, those who actually sell goods at the uh, PX on base. Uh, So when you put all of that together, the U.S. has had a sizable footprint of forces that has varied quite a lot over time. Uh, you know, when we kind of get into the history and sort of where we're going, we could probably talk about that a little bit more. But it's just really worth noting, you know, how much the U.S. has already in the Middle East and how much of this is in so many cases a legacy of the history of U.S. presence and activities in the Middle East and how that doesn't necessarily jibe with where, you um, various administrations from the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the current Biden administration, where they've been trying to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a running theme for me in thinking about this is the sort of path dependency we end up creating when we have, you know, we we create expensive tools uh, in these arrays of of sort of you know, mil- military systems and people, and then they're in place and they become, it becomes a sort of default to try and use them towards your policy aims because they're in place. Uh, and I, you know, I remember in the early years of this century, uh, a lot of, a lot of this infrastructure didn't exist and it got created, uh, in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and now what, what we have, I mean, just to sort of name some of the key, uh, uh, spots that I think we'll come back to in this conversation we have like a massive army base in Kuwait uh, we have massive air bases in the Emirates Saudi Arabia and Qatar uh, we have a massive naval naval base in Bahrain uh, and then co-located at those bases or maybe in other places uh, we have a variety of of either latent or uh, nimble uh, uh, infrastructure. So I'm thinking of smaller bases. I'm thinking of ports at which we have access rights. Uh, existing bases that we have the rights to to ramp up our presence, along with overflight uh, agreements with different countries. So and and I'm sure that I don't mean that as a comprehensive list. I'm just thinking of the sort of big ticket items that end up coming up again and again when we deal with political crises or security uh, crises in the region. Um, and And I I think
1: that's so important to note. And I think you're getting at such a valuable insight, which is posture is sticky right? So once you've put something there, it's really hard to break it. And it's this path dependency that you point to. But I think there is, in some cases, a little bit of a difference in the types of posture that you're describing. So the first is when we talk about bases and infrastructure and to some degree forces, we're talking about what is there in peacetime. Um, When you're looking at things like port rights, and overflight and access, yes, that matters during peacetime, but the time in which it matters the most, it's during crisis and potential conflict. So oftentimes when we're referring to those, we're looking at those as elements of contingency access as opposed to sort of steady state peacetime access.
0: Now, how many people, how many American service members are deployed in in this area? So
1: I don't have I don't have a good number for you. And to be entirely honest, I would take any number that you read in the press unless it is directly quoting a U.S. government official with a grain of salt. Um, There's a little bit of a numbers game as to how various uh, forces are counted. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a trick that happens about, you know, which orders they are sent to the region on. Um, And so if you use publicly available data, so um, the U.S. Department of Defense publishes something called DMDC, which allows you to, uh, you know, count up numbers of personnel. But it's purposely kind of obfuscated and the numbers aren't quite right. So if you add that up, you're going to get something that either vastly undercounts, or overcounts uh, force presence in the region. So all of that to say is I don't have a very good number for you, but there has been a very concerted effort that has quietly taken place to quote-unquote right-size U.S. presence in the region. And part of this has been reducing some of the forces that were sent to the Middle East as almost uh, crisis reaction uh, forces during tensions with Iran in 2019 and 2020 um there is quite a lot that was sent to the region in terms of air defense units in terms of uh you know uh additional um air assets um and you know a lot of those have since quietly left and because of that that's changed the footprint somewhat i think there's also been a shift away from Thinking of the Middle East as a priority theater, it has now become, in you know, U.S. Department of Defense parlance, an economy of force mission. And so, you have even at some of these larger bases that you mentioned, like RF John, which is the um, Army base in Kuwait, uh, you've had you know numbers at that base slightly uh, getting a little bit smaller um, in ways that I don't think folks necessarily would see or appreciate. And so when you put all of those together, we have a smaller footprint uh, than what we've seen in previous, uh, in more recent years. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's still the size that it ought to be.
0: Yeah, I find this this incredibly alarming. I mean, I was researching recently, I was writing a piece about correcting the relationship with Saudi Arabia and sort of by way of background I wanted to see you know how, how many how many troops does the US have uh, or how many military assets more widely does it have in Saudi, uh, in the Emirates? And it it turned out like as you said, not easy to answer. In fact, I didn't find an answer. So uh, the the closest thing I found was a a piece from this spring uh, uh, that Seth Jones wrote for CSIS that had a fifty to sixty thousand troop estimate for the U.S. footprint in uh, in the Gulf. Um, and you know, very very carefully. Frame to be like, not, you no, know, this is not a real number. This is a very rough, gross estimate. And so I'm sort of left and I was, I'm hoping you can sort of tell us how, like, how you think about it. Like, you know, in your mind, do you sort of guess it's about 50,000 people? Um, do you have a sort of ballpark in which you think, uh, uh, as a share of, US forces that are deployed in real areas we would think of as forward areas is the CENTCOM or, or Gulf deployment like a quarter. Of those of those people, um, and how and, and and I know I'm going to ask you this batch of big questions, and then ask you to answer it in like a minute. Um, and you know the the real the real footprint, and this is like what I want us to get away from this conversation. Uh, the real footprint is all the ways in which we are like locked in or positioned to do stuff. It's not about active duty service members on the ground. It could be contractors. It could be, as you said, like missile defense systems. It could be uh, uh, assets that aren't technically Pentagon assets or their, or, their, or their Pentagon contracts, but they are, in fact, locking us into, you know, the the... Uh, for a time, the air war in Yemen, or into uh, you know other other security commitments um, that in real in real terms are security commitments, even if they don't add up to uh, a deployment. So. Like, how, how do you think through when you think about this? And, and I'm, and I'm curious, too, because you're looking at other regions as well. Uh, and one of the framing questions here is like, are we over invested in the Middle East, when we should be paying more attention to uh, Europe, Russia, China, Taiwan Straits, other places? Uh, so there so even if we don't know the exact numbers, the relative posture, I think, is is probably one of the important operating concepts that that you must draw on.
1: Yeah, so let me see if I can break those down. 30 seconds. No, <laughs> no just kidding. Take your in time. Into a few different <laughs> silos, if I can. Um, You know, I think the 50 to 60K number sounds about right to me. And I think some of this is actually looking more at what's needed to operate uh, all of the different bases and outposts uh, that we've talked about and mentioned. Um, you know, I think there's also in some ways... um. We often think of this in part because we think of bases, right? We think of fixed infrastructure when we think of posture. But what we don't realize is how much posture can fluctuate, right? When we're looking at different force numbers, how much that fluctuates during the course of a year, right? And this is because of basic things that, you know, the U.S. military does, right, for however however long you're on the ground, you have to recoup readiness. So you have a very specific uh, amount of time that you'd be in theater and then you have to rotate out for rotational forces and even for permanent forces. So when you think about all of that, it's just, there's a little bit of a ebb and flow. And so usually that's why you end up seeing ballpark numbers because at any given time, it could change quite a lot. I think what isn't counted, in that sort of 50 to 60K, you know, general estimate that you had mentioned. I think some of the additional contractors, that's quite separate. Whole separate databases for that. And, you know, the Congressional Research Service has uh, put a lot of reports out that have tried to capture uh, the numbers of contractors that have been operating in various uh, places around the globe. So you have that. And then you also have, um, you know, some of these more steady state security cooperation activities that are ongoing and are a huge part of the U.S role or the U.S. military role in the Middle East at this point, you know, that requires a lot of, you know, temporary deployments, Um, you know, that brings a lot of folks cycling in and out of the region. And sometimes this takes the, you know, the form of exercises where you could see pretty sizable amounts of U.S. military personnel and equipment uh, being brought to the Middle East. Doing an exercise and departing. So the numbers just kind of fluctuate during the year really wildly. But even what's counted and estimated, you know, it's still just so inexact. And I think here, this is where we get to what I think a really big question is, which is this current footprint in the Middle East, is it appropriate and the right level for what the United States has put forward as its? global priorities. Um, you know, and I think, yes, the United States has made a lot of strides in trying to, um, change the way that it's been doing business in the Middle East and change what its forced posture is, but it takes a really long time to change posture. It's one of, again, it's that path dependency. Once you have it, it's really hard to leave it in part because, one, you've got partners who expect it and need to feel reassured and oftentimes um, it can create crises um, and specifically uh, crises of credibility and commitment within those various relationships. But also when you're looking at bases, you know, Concrete is a sunk cost, right? Bases themselves are a sunk cost. If you leave them, you're leaving all of the costs that you've put into it. And so there's a little bit of bureaucratic inertia to wanting to leave bases. Um, And so when you look at what at least the current administration has been trying to do, it has cited China as the long-term priority challenge. At the same time, there's a war going on in Europe. And so there's been a push to uh, ensure that, um, you know, the war doesn't expand further uh, to NATO members or that Russia is not able to aggress against any NATO members. All of that is taking up a lot of resources and bandwidth and those are the priorities. And so if you're looking at what is required, you know, for example, to strengthen deterrence in the Indo-Pacific uh, vis-a-vis China, or to be able to reinforce the eastern flank, NATO's eastern flank in Europe, you need to start thinking about how you are going to essentially augment your posture in Europe and China and where you can get the forces and equipment to do so. And a lot of what is required are these high-demand, low-density assets, these things that, you know, Everyone wants and needs, and this is air defense, this is intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, right? Whether those are drones or other um, airframes, you know, these are things that are in such high demand. And ultimately, they're going to have to come from the Middle East. But we haven't quite done that, and we haven't gotten there yet. It's still more of a thought than a practice.
0: Okay, we'll, we'll be right back after this short break to go back to that question. Today's world is changing faster than ever.
1: Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
0: You're listening to order from ashes. This is the Kambanis. And I'm talking to Becca Wasser from the center for new American security, uh, Becca, right before the break, uh, you were asking really the, the question that's I think the, the most important question of this conversation. Um, and, uh, uh, You know, I think we both we both probably have a similar similar types of answers to your question. Which you know, is this the right amount of of stuff to be throwing into the Middle East? And the answer is like, no, it's too much. Um, But uh, the details, I think, are where this gets bedeviled. And so, right before the break, uh, I want to pick up on what you were saying. Uh, You were talking about these these really high prestige and important systems like. Patriot missile batteries, air defenses, surveillance drones. Um, so these aren't necessarily things that come with ten or twenty thousand troops, uh, but these are the things that are in short supply and that are incredibly important uh, for security. And and that's true whether we're dealing with you know the next iteration of ISIS uh, in Iraq and Syria or uh, whether we're dealing with the crises that we're dealing with right now, a uh, world war sized war in continental Europe uh, and a Emerging crisis in the Taiwan Straits. So, uh, th- th- I guess this is where where the rubber meets the road, and I'm wondering uh, sort of how you talk through what next steps look like. Um, I've taken the the position that uh, we have to actually start moving these things out. Uh, so it's not necessarily about shutting down bases, but like we take Patriot missile batteries and and we take, uh, these other kinds of sophisticated air assets and we move them, uh, to the Ukraine theater or to Russia adjacent theaters that are actually under threat from a belligerent, uh, major power. Uh, and we will manage, uh, the, I'm sure sometimes difficult crises that will ensue with, uh, d- difficult, problematic uh, partners in the Gulf and uh, uh, friendly uh, uh, partners in the Gulf. Right? I mean, Qatar will be upset. The Saudis will be upset. The Emirates will be upset. Some of these are are partners that have been good partners. Some of them, like Saudi and the Emirates, have arguably, at least in my view, been uh, really sort of bordering on sabotage. Difficult partners. But in any case, there will be there will be concerns, and we already. Are dealing with a reality where all America's partners in the region say that America is pulling out, right? And their their perception is America has turned away from or turned its back on, uh, and certainly downgraded its commitment to security in the Middle East. So the U.S. is being is being faulted for that. Uh, at any rate, no matter what it has done to this point. Um, Exactly.
1: And I'm old enough to remember when we heard that from Abu Dhabi and Riyadh, you know, multiple times in the initial pivot to Asia during the Obama administration, right? Like, so that's always going to be the case. We're always going to hear that. Um, And at some point, you know, perhaps maybe the lady protests too much.
0: (laughs) That's never enough, right?
1: Yeah. And so when you, when you think about it like that, really what needs to happen is there needs to be, I wouldn't even call it a radical shift, but a shift in how the United States does business in the Middle East, right? And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see this idea of, frankly, the U.S. military should not be in the lead in the region, right? The U.S. military security cooperation, armed sales, uh, force presence, those should not be the first, you know, tool in the toolkit that, the, that Washington turns to for any given crisis or for upset partners. Instead, it's trying to use different tools to lead the relationship. And frankly, if all of these states are going to, you know, be upset, which frankly they will, and I understand why, um, you know, but at some point, uh, there needs to be a shift away from re- Reliance on the middle. Uh, sorry, reliance on the United States, um, and you know, it's either you could try and do this slowly, or you can just rip the bandaid off. And I think we're getting to the point where you sort of need to rip the bandaid off. The United States, for the first time in a very long time, is facing, you know, potential crises. Well, one current crisis, but also a potential crisis with two nuclear armed powers. Right. We haven't seen that since the Cold War, I would argue, maybe not even since the Cold War. So um, when you think about that and sort of the gravity and the enormity of the situation, it calls for changing how you've been doing things, because the status quo isn't going to work because the broader international environment has changed so much. And so now how the U.S. deals with the Middle East also has to change. It's going to be the region where the United States is going to accept risk, right? This is something that you hear quite often from U.S. government officials. They're going to accept risk in the Middle East. And what does that mean? It means that the Middle East isn't going to be the number one, uh, you know, priority for the U.S. Department of Defense. And thinking about ways, to do things differently to alter the force posture and to you know try and find ways of working with the gulf states in particular that allow them to take more responsibility for their own security as well as that of the broader neighborhood and here i think you know this administration in particular is really heavily banking on uh, regional security integration. And by this, I mean integration, security cooperation uh, among the Gulf states and Israel. And in some cases, if we're gonna be a little bit crude about it, what this really means is sort of changing the hub and spoke system that very much exists in the Middle East where the US is the linchpin, and all of the different uh, Gulf states cooperate with uh, Washington instead of Washington being at the center of that, trying to see if they can get Israel to be at the center of that. Because there's still... I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes down to regional security integration, in part because there are just so many sizable barriers to true cooperation and true integration. And chief among them, it's political mistrust and sovereignty concerns. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think we... I think we could spend an hour just on this on this subject. Um, I'll just say, w- whatever whatever is being hoped for there is unlikely to come to fruition anytime soon. Um, uh, and you know, we've seen in the last twenty years, even with a huge U.S. presence, that hasn't actually. I mean, you know, from the Qatar Saudi rift uh, to you know belligerent confrontations between Iran and 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 its neighbors. The U.S. presence hasn't actually mitigated those those, those dangers, um, so we're facing them one one way or another. So I'm I, I'm interested in how you game out what the, the sort of top pair of threats, which I think you've also identified in things you've written about. One is uh, Iran; the other is uh, the you know the the next iteration uh, is if it is to materialize of a takfiri group like ISIS. So in a sort of downsized or right sized uh, uh, sm- smaller. Less less pri- military priority for the U S in this region. How does the U S end up dealing with those two threats uh, if and when they escalate? Which you know I think I think in a, in moments of crisis like we're experiencing the Ukraine war, uh, peripheral b- belligerents often sees that as an opportunity uh, to go for a maximalist gain uh, because they feel like powers like the U S are preoccupied elsewhere. So how do we how do you game that out?
1: Yeah, I think opportunistic aggression is definitely something that is, um, you know, a pretty decent risk here. So I think it really comes down to better linking what U.S. interests are to the potential scenarios that it thinks that it might face. Right. When we talk about, you know, the threat from Iran, what is it that the United States is most concerned about? Is it, you know, Iranian gray zone malign behavior Or is it, you know, Iran being a nuclear power? Because what would be required to manage both um, quite it leads to very different force structure and very different choices that one would make. Um, You know, I think it's also worth noting that if you think through things, there's threats. And then there's also just some priorities that the U.S. is going to consistently have in the region. And one that we've heard pretty consistently is, you know, maintaining the freedom of navigation um, in, uh, particularly, you know, the Indian ocean red sea region, um, and, you know, in the Gulf as well. Uh, so, you know, that also requires a continued naval presence, you know, altogether, it's just really meaning that the United States needs to look at what does it care about most? What are the priority threats? What are the priority scenarios? Because you know, just managing an Iran threat is too amorphous, right? You need to sort of put more specificity to what you're trying to actually deter, and that in turn would give you a better sense of your force posture. Um, that said, I think you know my opinion—just my opinion—and this has sort of long been the case. A very informed is, opinion, you
0: know, <laughs> it is. <I> point out.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for that one. I'll pay you later. Um, you know. I think the United States needs to think about reducing some of its uh, more permanent presence as well as the size of its presence at a variety of different bases. It needs to start shifting to one of the things that I had sort of raised earlier were the different types of access, right? Rather than having bases, the United States can turn some smaller, smaller bases, not the large one, but some smaller bases over to host nations for upkeep. And use them as contingency bases, bases that the United States could operate from during potential crises that could emerge or during operations they would need for either, you know, trying to find ways to deter a potential adversary or, if needed, you know, defeat, um, you know, a would-be adversary. So, you need to do that. And then at the same time, I think it's again thinking about all of these global priorities. What do you need to have and where? And, you know, air defense is going to be one of those ubiquitous things. Everyone wants it, everyone needs it. But the Middle East might not necessarily be the priority location for it. And if that's the case, trying to think of what you need to shift out of the theater into other regions, whether that is Europe. Um, and the Indo Pacific. And through doing that, you're going to slowly start shrinking your force presence at some of these more major operating bases. So for me, it's having a mix, a better mix of the types of posture and the types of access that you would need for future operations. Essentially, what you're doing is you're almost developing a hedging footprint where you have the access that you need if you need to plus up during crisis or conflict. But at the same time, you're not doubling down on having that steady state peacetime competition presence that so many states in the Middle East have become quite reliant on.
0: I I think that's, that's exactly right, and uh, you know, I, I spent the morning reading about six or five or six reports that you've written or co-authored over the last couple of years uh, ahead of this conversation. Um, and what I came away from, I mean, this you know, playing to a pre-existing uh, bias of of how I think through this is the things that are most important to us. We do not we do not need to have the United States invested in this kind of colossal standing footprint in order to achieve so. The U.S. has this very uh, uh, th- 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 these capabilities of very quickly creating capacities that didn't exist. So when ISIS took over uh, you know, a third of Iraq, it took only a few months for the U.S. to put into place the assets it needed to work with a suddenly newly committed Iraqi government to fight ISIS, right? So it's not just what did the U.S. put in place, it's that this key uh, regional government, which had been neglecting its own security, was suddenly very motivated uh, uh, to get that right uh, and put its own lives on the line to do so. Uh, And to me, that's that's a blueprint of how we should be thinking about Genuine security threats, because genuine security threats aren't just American threats. They, the region shares them. So the, so even if they're irritated with the United States for some other reason, when a real threat materializes as opposed to one of these uh, exaggerated threats that they use to, to try and invoke goodies uh, from the U.S., uh, everyone, everyone's interests will line up and, and they'll do what needs to be done. Um, and I think that there's there's another piece of this, uh, which I, I think I hear in what you're saying as well, which is the huge moral hazard the United States creates by having all these forces in place. So, for example, maximalist confrontation with Iran uh, becomes more risky if the U.S. is already there, and American partners feel like they're protected if they if they go out over the line. Uh, and and similarly, like crazy own goals like the the Gulf Rift you know, between, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Saudi and Qatar, would would they have dreamed of doing that? If the U S wasn't so heavily invested in providing a security umbrella, if they felt like they had to be protecting themselves from real threats, would they have created that, that nutty, uh, you know, years long, huge resource wasting rift, uh, or did they do that because they were, they were free to, cause of the free rider problem U S created with this moral hazard of its huge infrastructure, defense infrastructure there.
1: I mean that's definitely there's definitely something to be said for that but I think you know there's also there's also a little bit of a flip side you know if the United States takes a less concerted role in the Middle East and working with some of these partners you know that leads them to you know what the US is trying to push for they have ownership of their own security and the united states has you know embarked on a lot of different security cooperation endeavors trying to build up you know the various gulf militaries in order for them to be able to protect themselves and to you know potentially protect each other but for reasons that we've already discussed i often find that a bridge too far but you know the thing is is that once you give an independent capability right so once you teach a military, how to operate. That's an independent capability that they can then use as they please. Right. And I think we've seen a little bit of this with, um, you know, Saudi and Emirati adventurism as it's related to the Yemen war. Um, and that's an example of, you know, they had independent capabilities, not just sort of military capabilities, but I'm also talking about the ability to actually launch operations, um, conduct operations and be, um, you know, at least have some form of logistics for what they were doing. and they were doing something that worked against US interests. and But at the same time, the US had sort of helped them build up this capability that they were able to use. So I think there has to be a recognition in Washington that, you know, if they are going to take a different approach to the region as they should, it needs to be aware that, you know, there are These are a bunch of states that have their own independent interests that don't always align with Washington's and that uh, they're going to use some of their military equipment, the things that the U.S. military has taught them over time in ways that perhaps, you know, the White House isn't going to like. Um, and so part of that means that we need to shift to a more adult conversation, right? An adult conversation with these partners. And this gets back to our point about, you know, they're going to complain no matter what. Sure. But we can have open and honest conversations with them rather than sort of trying to bat around whether, you know, things are going to change or not, or always placate them, right? Having these adult conversations is actually how you become better partners to each other, Rather than just keeping uh you know sort of the steady state which has not worked,
0: this is the nasty Kambanis. I'm talking to Becca Wasser on order from ashes uh, and becca you you lead to i think the the point we want to close with as we as we wrap up this this conversation which is the the politics and the how right and you you touched on the relationships with our u s partners in the region and and I think there's also the element of the Domestic politics around making these shifts as well. Uh, I don't just mean partisan uh, politics in in Washington, although that's an important part of it. But I'm thinking also of you know, defense contractors and districts in the U.S. where uh, people's jobs and livelihoods depend on this, these militarized relationships. Um, so, uh, you know, as we as we a sort of cap uh of you know like you you want to reposition that means cuts that means repositioning resources how um how could the US manage the politics of making such a shift and where do you think the the where do you think the hardest uh points whether it would be in uh in districts that rely heavily on defense contracts whether it would be in uh uh relationships already under strain like the US Saudi relationship where do you see the 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 real uh, difficult points being, and how would you imagine managing the politics of it?
1: Well, I mean, I think you're going to have some pretty upset folks in a variety of different capitals in the, in the Gulf. Um, and I think it's, again, having engaging some of the leaders in an open and honest way and having a conversation, right? Not telling them necessarily, oh, this is how it's going to go. And this is what you are going to do, but saying, you know, this is what we're planning on doing. This is why, um, you know, let's talk about it. Uh, I think, I think, frankly, if the U.S. doesn't want the military to be the lead tool in the Middle East, then it really needs to double down on using its diplomats and diplomacy. And this is a great example of where they could do so. I also think it's worth noting that, you know. While the US is talking about how the Middle East is an economy of forced mission, how it's the region where they're going to accept risk, I think there's always a little bit of a quid pro quo. And in this case, the quid pro quo, perhaps for a reduced uh, U.S. military footprint in the Middle East has been, and I know that this is going to sound um, a little bit, uh, you know, nonsensical, because uh, it seems to be a plus up in posture rather than a reduction in posture. But I think the quid pro quo here um, could be this new Red Sands facility. So uh, CENTCOM announced that they, were, that they were working with regional partners to open this new facility, in Saudi Arabia, um, which also happens to be located far enough within uh, Saudi Arabia's territory that it's outside of some of the worst uh, range rings uh, from Iranian missiles, but that this was going to be their center for regional integration as well as experimentation. So in some ways, the U.S. has decided to open up what could be thought of as a new base, where it's going to emphasize... um, Regional partners working together, uh, particularly when it comes down to counter uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, as well as really creative things um, with directed directed energy. This might actually be sort of the chit that Washington has to placate some of these partners. So as the US is thinking about how it can do less elsewhere within the region, how it can sort of reduce its footprint. And how it can push these states to better regional security architecture. It's, you know, said the trade is we have this new facility. We are clearly here and we're going to be working with you on some of the most pressing threats that you have faced at this facility. Um, Can't you see that we care about your security still? So that might be sort of the weird quid pro quo that's already on the table or already being discussed.
0: Well, that's. I mean, I'm. I'm thinking uh, that that sounds actually like smart, uh, smart politics around how to do this. Uh, it does seem to me like uh, the U.S. is still going to be invested in a considerable way in in the region, no matter what. Uh, but we've come a long way, right? I mean, we didn't. We ended up not having time to get into too much details about the history, but. Fifty thousand uh, active duty troops in 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 the Gulf uh, today is a huge drop from the peak in uh, you know the late two thousands when uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Right, I mean maybe upwards of three hundred thousand at some point uh, in in the region, uh, and so that's an improvement. And and I guess some people have argued recently that that the U.S. is currently in a process of shrinking. I'm not. Do, do, do you see that as as true, I mean, since Biden took office, would you say the U.S. footprint in the Gulf has shrunk?
1: Um, I would. I would say, in some ways, it is getting. It has been more of an emphasis of getting back to normal, right? Because there was this larger plus up that occurred, um, you know, during uh, tensions with Iran mm-hmm. during that. So uh, it's been getting it back to normal, and then really subtle uh, you know, reductions in forces and different ways of doing things. Again, you know, moving more towards bomber task forces, moving more towards rotational presence. So, you know, I think we're in the slow process of doing things and I think that there's movement in the right direction. Um, Just, you know, one of the things that I said pretty early on in our conversation was changing posture takes a lot of time, right? It takes a long time. It never happens that quickly. Um, And so I think that's the process that we're seeing now. And, you know, I think it also, you know, there's something worth saying about metering expectations. There are some folks who argue that U.S. presence in the Middle East should get to zero, that the U.S. should you know, fully retrench from the region and leave entirely. I'm not of that mindset. I believe that it would actually be detrimental to U.S. interests um, and to regional security if that were to happen. But there does need to be more shifts in how the U.S. is operating, where it's operating from, and the presence it needs to have in this peacetime competition phase. And that's what needs to change. And I think we're starting to see some slow, slow changes moving in that direction.
0: Well, Becca, thank you so much for your time and the the last thing you said, I think is is exactly on the point that. This whole series and really all our work at, at Century on Progressive Foreign Policy comes down to, which is if we are looking at how the U.S. can be constructive internationalist presence, uh, uh, isolationism is not the answer. Uh, you know, we're not we're not pacifists looking for a, a de, completely demilitarized United States. So it's really hard to get these questions right. How much to be involved? And with the presumption that some amount of involvement is required Uh Thank you so much. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, uh, director of Century International. I've been talking with Becca Wasser from the Center for New American Security. This is part of our series on what progressive foreign policy uh, uh, could look like, should look like, uh, if we really deal with the nuts and bolts uh, and thorny details of all these tough policy questions. Becca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for this great conversation.
0: been listening to order from ashes the international affairs podcast from the century foundation if you've enjoyed what you heard please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts it'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations thanks for listening till next time